I think a big part of it is bringing intentionality to how we're structuring our days. A little bit of silence can go a really long way. Um, Having frequent short breaks for a minute, you know, throughout a really busy day. And the other place that I feel is really important is just building into the day is an opportunity in the beginning of the day and intermittently to just ask myself, what is really the priority? The priority for me as a human, the priority for me, for my business, of the bazillion things I could do that would probably be great. Like, what is the one? And what do I want to put my attention on? And that's a real question that I know I can go days without asking if I don't put that into my rituals of my life. Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson, and I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Leah Weiss, and I'm Being Boss. Today, we're talking about mindfulness and business with Leah Weiss. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. Okay, I hope the IRS isn't listening because I'm about to tell you I am not great about keeping receipts for my business expenses. The way I see it is it's 2018 and paper shouldn't be a thing that we have to keep up with still. There's a digital trail for everything. But I recently had a chat with my accountant and she explained that physical receipts are still important because they itemize the purchases you made, which will keep you on the up and up if, let's say, a $500 expense at Target is put into question. Then you can prove that you spent $500 on office supplies and not the new Chip and Joanna Gaines collection. So one thing I love about FreshBooks Cloud Accounting is they make it so easy to digitally keep track of your physical receipts. You can take a picture and store a photo of it in the mobile app. Plus, FreshBooks automates your expenses directly from your bank account, which makes reconciling a snap. Try FreshBooks Cloud Accounting for free by going to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter beingboss in the how did you hear about us section. Leah Weiss is a lecturer at Stanford Business School, researcher, and meditation expert. She is a founding faculty member of the Dalai Lama's Compassion Cultivation Program developed at Stanford University. She has dedicated her life to teaching people how to leverage research-based mindfulness and compassion insights to create outstanding leaders and thriving work environments. Leah, welcome to Being Boss. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to talking with you both. Well, we've been looking forward to it too. I think that what we're going to be talking about today will resonate not only with us, but pretty much all of our listeners. So we're so excited to have you on the show. Can you tell us what it is that you do and really the kind of conversation that you're trying to create on a national and global scale? So my work is with existing and emerging leaders. Um, I've been teaching a class at the Stanford Business School, um, leading with mindfulness and compassion. I've got a book coming out that brings a lot of these tools forward um, in this March with HarperCollins called How We Work. And my real interest is in giving people evidence-based, highly practical skills to live a more purposeful life at work and beyond. Um, and, and my feeling is this also has strong implications um, for 
our use of shared resources and ethics and all kinds of other implications, because I think we get into trouble as individuals and organizations when we lose track of our purpose. So I see this as being not just about growth for us as individuals, but as about the way forward to get to the root of what we need to do to create thriving businesses and communities and world. I love this. I love how this conversation is coming to the forefront around this holistic view of working and living and how like holistically those two things work together to make a whole happy person. But even larger than that, one happy person can make such huge changes in small communities and large communities. How, I don't know, it's just becoming a cool thing to realize that everything is intertwined and everything plays off of everything. And it's such an important Um, Such an important point of view to have as I think people working and living in the modern age where we're wondering how and why everything is so broken. But I feel like this is the solution is to view the world and like on the macrocosm and and the micro what it is that you're doing with your own life and work, how it all works together. Yes, I I couldn't agree more. I think that... Um, this recognition that we are one person who's filling multiple roles rather than trying to be different people that we segment is really the way forward so that we can have um, the reality of our day-to-day lives as we move through the different aspects of our day at home, with our families, with our colleagues, um, that we recognize that there's not these clear boundaries between the concerns we have for a health of a loved one, for example, and how we're showing up at work and and how we're going to do the best work that we can and acknowledging that all of our teammates have full selves that they're bringing. Um, And I think that what we're really learning now is that when people have this perspective, we actually are more effective and more on purpose. It doesn't mean that we can't get stuff done. We actually work better together when we attend to the relationships professionally um, rather than pretending that they don't matter because they do. I think you're for sure speaking to the choir here. So our podcast listeners are a lot of creative entrepreneurs, and some of them are working day jobs and maybe hustling on the side with their creative endeavor. But a lot of us really felt the need to blend more of who we are into the work that we do with our personal brands. Um, And whenever we're, you know, creating content, we're not always separating the personal from the professional. But I think that there is still a lot of residual rules in place whenever it comes to um, how we work and kind of putting on that professional cap versus not professional cap. And, you know, it's even kind of funny because as I record this podcast, I have a child with a fever lying in my lap. And I apologize to the both of you before we hit record saying, like, I know that this is so unprofessional. So where do you kind of draw the line, though? Because I do feel like at some point, um, 
there is an aspect of not floodlighting, to use some Brene Brown language here, of not floodlighting your coworkers with your shit, but also making sure that they do understand that you are a whole person and that you might be going through some shit. So some things that I'm specifically thinking about, not only within the context of organizations, but even in the context of creative entrepreneurs who are working with clients are things like the death of a parent or even maternity leave or being pregnant and having a child, like these external factors that can greatly impact our work. Like how do we bring more mindfulness and compassion and professionalism to the table whenever it comes to blending these things in an appropriate way? Yeah, this is such a great question. And, you know, I feel like one of the things that, um, that we worry about rightfully so is, you know, how do I do it in a way that feels authentic, but also isn't, um, you know, sharing what I'm going through or understanding people around me, but also like we have work to get done together. And, um, you know, and also sometimes when people have major life stuff going on, they don't want to be asked or imposed on every five minutes. Like, how are you feeling? How is it going? Like, Sometimes people actually like having the ability um, to go to work and focus when they want to. Cheryl Sandberg was, um, she came to the business school at Stanford to give a talk a a few months ago. And she was talking about how in her grieving process, how important it was to her to have a place at work that she could go. And obviously everyone knew that she was experiencing such intense grief, but also you know, so my my point is we need to make decisions about what we want to share. And we also need to respect what the people around us most need, which might be different from what we might think they need or we would need. Part of how I like to approach it is to be practical, to have conversations and really to keep um, the awareness. So when you're doing a check-in with your team each week, like you can set the norms around that, that it's not a 30 minute therapy session. It's, you know, what's on your mind, what's going on for you individually? What are you focusing on for work? What do you anticipate might be roadblocks um, internally, externally? So it's just part of the conversation. And if you set up a structure that contains it, um, And also, you know, so that people, it's not like an invitation that we're no longer going to have the meeting we're here to have that, you know, we're just going to spend the whole time doing therapy. Um, I think that that's really important. And then for the opposite of supporting other people, I think it's really a question of like having the conversation. What do you need to support you? What do you want on your maternity leave? Do you want radio silence? Do you want meals? Do you want check-ins? Like asking someone because I know I've been on the receiving end and had friends on the receiving end of good intentions from work colleagues, but actually it was a big stressor. <laughs> they just Their actual preference would have been to have a break from those relationships, but you feel like you can't do that and nobody asked. So I think some of these, like, what would this look like for you? What does support look like, you know, financially, emotionally, in terms of communication when people are dealing with life events? Right. I always feel like there's this fine line between overthinking it and not thinking about it enough. 
I guess, where you, in for example, you know, you're going through a hard situation and you go to work and you tell no one about it, or you have overthought it to the point where you aren't going to share anything that's happening and no one understands what's going on and it affects your work and they make all these assumptions as to why you're acting weird or whatever it may be because you've overthought it to the point where you just don't do anything about it. And then the flip side of that is just going in and telling everyone all of your problems and expecting everyone to solve them or at least listen, um, at least listen to what it is that you're going through. And that's not the place of your coworkers either. So I think there is this fine line there. And I, I believe that it's probably different for everyone where, you know, depending on your situation, both, you know, externally, like what it is that you're going through, but also your um, your role and your colleagues in your job. I think that I'm sure there is no easy answer, but, but it is about writing that fine line of thinking things through enough to know that you're sharing enough so that that people understand, but not oversharing in a way that affects how it is that you're able to show up and get the job done. Yeah, I think that's such a good way to put it. And I feel like one of the things that gets people into trouble is when we try to not deal with it. Like, I'm going to put this in a box. It, Like you said, often if there's something major going on, it shows up in our work. So we're not hiding it, we're just not giving people context. So I think that's exactly right. Like what's the appropriate amount of context that that we can and should give. And testing that out with people too. I mean, having friends in the workplace where we can like pre-think before we're going and doing this in the big group or to the person we report to or to our clients, you know, that we have like, here's how I'm thinking to frame this. How does this sound? Like ask for feedback and coaching so you can prep it, uh, get used to get used to it. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is the role of suppressing emotions. So many people have ideas that being professional means like you're not going to feel and you're not going to verbalize what you're feeling. And, you know, I have years of stories of students and people I work with who come back to this, you know, they're in high pressure startup situations or working around the clock. The thing that they don't deal with today becomes the blow up of tomorrow. And sometimes these stories like businesses implode because relationships, things that you could have had a challenging conversation about a few months back, you didn't. And then it becomes such a huge flare up that there's, you know, becomes very difficult to recover from. So this is one of the things we work on a lot. Like, you know, you could first you have to make the step of it to have the emotional intelligence, know what you're feeling, what you're triggered by. Then you can take the step to be intentional about when and how you surface it. Um, but just trying to ignore it is a strategy that will implode. For sure. And, you know, for our listeners who don't maybe have coworkers or aren't, you know, working within the context that you're really speaking to, I think that this is where it's so valuable to have what we call a business bestie or a mastermind group or a coach where you can really process some of these things and these emotions and how you're going to handle it in the professional setting with a group of trusted people or person who can really help you navigate what that is. And so one thing I wanted to just ask you before we move on to talking more about mindfulness and meditation and bringing mindfulness to work is is there any sort of language around having these difficult conversations or any sort of practical tools around saying like 
okay, I'm putting on a different hat here. Like this isn't my fully professional hat. I don't know how to articulate what I'm saying, but I need to, you know, authentically tell you that this is what's going on. Do you have any sort of practical guidance around having those really difficult conversations within your trusted circle or even with your clients or someone where it's a little trickier? Yes. Well, I think that, you know, one of the tools that I find really helpful is the idea of the ladder of inference. So, you know, the bottom of this ladder, you can picture like data, information, the what's happening, so behaviors. And then you climb up this ladder and there's our interpretation. So if it's, you know, a relationship you and I are having, say we're working together, you're my client. So you blow off a few of our calls. So that's the observable behavior. Then I can interpret that any number of ways. But what will often happen is we know is like, I'm anxious. Why didn't you show up for these calls? Is this signaling me that you're not going to re-up, you know, our work together? And maybe I climb a few levels of interpreting, anticipating, then responding to your behavior, but also my ideas about your behavior. Um, So one of the things that I think is really helpful is we all do this all the time, professionally, personally, but to just realize as we're climbing this ladder and getting further and further into our stories that we're doing that. So that's a great opportunity to like identify what is the story here? What's the behavior? What's the feeling? So the behavior was like, you didn't show up to a couple of our meetings. My feeling is fear, anxiety, um, And then in having this conversation with you, it helps me parse out, hey, just noticed, you know, want to check in with you. I've noticed you haven't been on the last few calls. What's going on? So you could keep the conversation, get the data level back. It might be something totally different. Maybe they have something going on in their professional, personal life. Um, And then if it feels appropriate, you can make the choice to say, the story I was telling myself is X. And I just want to check that out with you because it might be totally off base. And so you're, you know, that's a judgment call. It might not be appropriate in every relationship to go from the data to just like, I noticed you weren't on the calls. To hear, they might care how you're feeling about it. So don't in, inflict it. But if it feels authentic to that relationship, then, you know, you can put that out there for the conversation or ask questions of them that get at their interpretations and stories about the relationship. So I see that as being really effective and something to practice, um, just having the language for and like using that, that test with myself of is what I'm seeing, like, what's the part of this that is a true observable behavior? And what's the part of this is highly subjective, because they just get so mixed up together in our experience. I know, I love the idea of even, you know, being able to go to a business partner or my teammates and being like, hey, I am halfway up this ladder right now. And so, you know, what I'm seeing is this, but what I'm feeling is this, but even just literally saying where I'm at on the ladder, okay, I'm one rung up on the ladder. Okay, I'm three rungs up on the ladder. I'm at the very top of the ladder and I need some help coming down. So I think that that's like a really cool visual to add to the story that we're telling ourselves. I find it really helpful. The first time I had it introduced to me, I was actually working with someone who was funding a project that I was on. And the meeting was for me to go over a timeline with them. And um, this woman who is just amazing at this skill set, and she pointed out we got to like Q1 of whatever the next year was. She's like, 
starting to talk faster and you seem kind of agitated. Like what's going on for you as you're talking about the goals in that quarter? It, was, it just floored me because I hadn't made this, the connection that I was stressed. I felt like the benchmarks we had set, they weren't realistic. She's the funder. So it's like a high stakes situation. I didn't know how to communicate it. Um, but then it allowed for this conversation of, you know, here's, you know, I'm trying, I'm, I'm thinking for myself as we're talking through this, this, this calendar, is this realistic? What resources do I need to make this happen? Or do we need to recalibrate the plan? And it just was this incredible um, example of her noticing from the behavior and the emotions, getting into the story and being able to actually address what was going on. It was so cool. So that's been like kind of my what I try to do ever since then, if I'm with someone and they're, you know, or to invite the people on my team to give me that kind of feedback. Yeah. Sounds like powerful stuff. I like it. I like it because it is all like just voicing. It's voicing and processing through. And you can't always do that alone. You need to do it with the people who are involved in all levels of everything we just talked about. You're not in it alone. All right, I want to gear the conversation toward mindfulness and meditation. I think that this is something that our bosses listening could really use more of, or at least, I mean, all of it. Who couldn't? Who couldn't use more mindfulness and meditation and compassion and all the things? So I was poking around your website a little bit and saw that you have experience with silent retreats. Can you talk? Fascinating. I, I know. And it's, and it's silence for 10 days, correct? I did actually, during my 20s, I did a number of 100-day retreats and one six-month retreat before I had kids. Wait, <laughs> you did a six-month silent retreat? Mm-hmm. Okay, here I was thinking like 10 days, like that's intense. Oh my gosh, so six months of silence, can you just kind of give us the down low? Like what <laughs> happened? So I practiced in um, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, and so a lot of there's this developed curriculum and you move from practice to practice. There's a lot of elaborate visualizations. There's um, different um, it's meditation in the much broader sense than just like sitting and, you know, being quiet and listening your breath, which, you know, just to put that out there, um, we did do some practices like that, but it was um, just, expanded beyond way beyond um you know just sitting and watching your breath for six months Uh, although those are great practices to do and some people do you know my husband's done three-month retreats more focused on that um on the breath part so I mean I think for me I was always really motivated to understand experientially like where do these practices go and then the next questions for me were okay this is amazing but how do we make this actionable for people who are not going to go do 100 day meditation retreats and even you know for me now I have three little kids 7 4 and 3 years old like so I'm not leaving them for 100 days um, Can you imagine if you didn't speak to your kid for 10 days like just all the crap they would get into <laughs> right I know well because I've been thinking imagine. I think it's called vipassana maybe you know Leah I've been thinking about doing that I have a friend that does silent meditations for 10 days and she um always has mind-blowing experiences with each one and I'm really feeling the need right now to just 
be quiet for 10 days. I love the idea of it, but it isn't at all feasible, you know, with my life and my lifestyle and my work and my family. So that's really what I'm trying to figure out from my wiser friends who have had that experience is like, what was your key takeaway? And then how do you continue? Because it's one thing to go sit or, you know, expanded meditation for 10 days or six months or three months or however long it might be, but then bringing it back to the real world, even for people who practice meditation on a daily basis for 20 minutes at a time or get really into a yoga retreat, I think the challenge is always just bringing, how do we bring this back into the real world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because even if we do that retreat, eventually we come out of it and go home and then still the same exact question you're asking I think a big part of it is bringing intentionality to how we're structuring our days. A little bit of silence can go a really long way. Um, Having frequent short breaks for a minute, you know, throughout a really busy day. The person who first got me really interested in the power of these short practices was Congressman Tim Ryan, who wrote Mindful Nation. And he came and spoke at our Compassion Center at Stanford Um, soon after I started working there. And he was just talking about for people who are moving all the time, like Congress people, like entrepreneurs who are working one, possibly two jobs and everything else. When you stop for a brief period of time, that has such a strong impact. Um, And the other place that I feel is really important is just building into the days an opportunity at the beginning of the day and intermittently to just ask myself, what is really the priority? The priority for me as a human, the priority for me, for my business, of the bazillion things I could do that would probably be great. Like, what is the one? And what do I want to put my attention on? Um, and that's a real question that I know I can go days without asking if I don't put that into my rituals of my life. Um, So I think adding these rituals, and for me, the definition of mindfulness as the intentional use of attention is really powerful because we can, and I would argue should use our attention intentionally everywhere, not just on a meditation cushion, when we're with our kids, when we're getting a task done, um, you know, monotasking can be a mindfulness practice, seeing all the distractions that pull us away. Um, So I'm increasingly out of necessity in the phase of life I'm in. But, you know, I just feel too like these integrating is the name of the game. Like it was never about meditation for meditation's sake. It was meditation as a tool to live a more purposeful, compassionate life. And so I feel like It's been great that we've prioritized seated meditation and put it together with mindfulness. But I feel like if I have a soapbox, it's to also reclaim all the other sides of it that aren't just eyes closed meditation, like the rest of the 24 hours of the day. I love this. I also love the idea. Whenever we talk to our creative entrepreneur crowd, one of the things they struggle with the most is marketing themselves, which usually includes speaking or like outputting some sort of language to tell people about what it is that they do. And I almost wonder, and I'm just like flying off the seat of my pants here, I almost wonder if giving people 
more time or people taking it for themselves more time to look inward and listen and like and listen inward or just like sit more quiet time would actually make them better like expressors so being able to output if you are lowering your output by being silent occasionally and occasionally focusing more not even on input but just what is currently there Makes sense? Does that make sense to anybody? Because <laughs> I'm feeling that a lot, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I was also thinking about this idea of, you know, mindful nation. Because for me, as a type A creative, and I'm sure that some of our listeners can resonate, we feel like we need to have this meditation practice that looks like a meditation practice. And by God, we're going to do it every single day, and it's going to be perfect, when in fact it's really not. And so whenever you were talking about mindful nation, I haven't read the book, but this this idea that if we were all like if all you know six billion of us or however many of us are in the states at least would take 10 minutes a day to chill out how much better our entire nation would be um really really drives the point home to me that just a little bit can really go a long way yeah i i really feel like it's almost an inertia habit for me, I see this in my own, you know, habits around getting ready for book launch. It's like there's always, it's so easy to get into being a to-do list ninja, but having those breaks that are, you know, quiet and grounding and what am I feeling and which of these activities is purposeful so that we can orient our actions towards those um I think it's it's definitely vital and I think it's one of our collective mistakes we make that's like the more we work the more we're going to get done there's that's not true after a point we need to do sleep and self-care and reflect and there's a reason there's so many great examples of um of breakthroughs happening not while we're sitting and staring at the computer or working actively on the pro- on the problem but Afterwards, taking the walk when we're washing the dishes in the shower, like that needs to be built into our process if we want to have sustainability and resilience. For sure. And that's something I know I felt time and time again. And I know Kathleen has as well. And I, but I also love the idea of going against what Kathleen's saying with having this like picture perfect Instagrammable meditation practice, which is not what meditating is about. Um, But doing what you say instead with this idea of like everything you do should be a practice in mindfulness and and should be gone into with intention. This reminds me of that uh, Making Oprah podcast where Oprah is talking about whenever she started going at every decision she made in her life and business with the idea of what is the intention of this is when she really saw some transformation and what was coming out of the work that she was doing. It was no more just doing things because it was a good idea or because someone said they should do it or whatever. It was what is a very clear and beneficial to others intention that goes into this action that we're taking. And if, if it couldn't be pinpointed, then it wasn't done. And if it could be pinpointed, then that was the intention with which they did the thing. And I think that I think that that's a really great, a really great idea for bringing it into everyday life. Maybe it's not 
although you could find 10, 20 minutes every day to sit down and be quiet and, and focus and do the thing. But if for whatever reason you can't do that or you're not doing that, simply bringing that level of mindfulness to tasks that you're doing all day every day can probably make a huge shift as well, I imagine. I'm so curious to hear from both of you, like what kind of tasks do you feel the most mindful doing? That's not like an obvious, you know, quote unquote meditation. Is it doing the dishes? Is it, you know, part of your morning routine? Like, do you have these moments that almost trigger you into meditation through action? Yes, I just thought of a really good one for me, and it's cooking and usually around stirring the pot. <laughs> whatever it may be do whatever it may be that I'm cooking, it's usually those moments of like stirring or sauteing where I, you know, sit and think like I've made this for my family. I hope it makes them healthy, like all of these things. So that's one of mine. <laughs> it's funny that you say that, Emily. Mine is chopping the vegetables. Like it's the chopping for me that always brings like me into the moment of, you know, cooking for and also it makes me really think about my family but I'm trying to think of if there are any work examples as well where for me it's usually these really repetitive tasks where I'm not having to make decisions and I think it's why I love designing sometimes I love doing graphic design especially the more repetitive mundane design tasks because I can really start to it's not quite zoning out. It's almost more like the idea of tapping in. And that's where I really notice it is in these moments where I could easily be zoning out, like washing the dishes, but instead tapping into how does the water feel? You know, whenever I'm washing this glass, like am I getting all the spots and just really being present with those moments. So your turn, Leah, like do you have any actions or moments that really trigger you into that kind of mindfulness or even recommendations for our listeners to use some of their actions as a trigger for mindfulness. Yeah, I I mean on the sort of home front, I love the the cooking or cleaning, gardening, um and I think for me with like work tasks, I've been finding it so helpful to do, you know, set the 25-minute timer and just do really focused monotasking and then give myself an actual break and then sit down and do it again instead of these sort of endless work sessions that are semi-focused and task switching. Um, It just, I feel so much better and I get a lot more done, but it's that feeling better part that's so interesting. Um, And I think another one for me lately has been, I got into some bad habits, I'd say, especially like a year and a half ago where I was was on, I was saying yes to too many phone calls that I didn't, or like conversations that I didn't need to be on and didn't really have time for. So I'd kind of multitask. And when I've stopped, I've started saying no to more and then have a practice of being really present to the ones that I'm in, which can include sometimes cutting things short if it, I need to. Um, I feel like, you know, first of all, the quality of the connections and just really like appreciating people. That's um, not possible when I'm multitasking, right? Like, and um yeah, just being more meetings and making decisions about conversations and, you know, are we spending time networking with people or, or selling or talking or creating? Like these are some of the big pain points that we all have. Um, so for me, like the prioritizing and holding myself accountable when I've said I'm going to be at this meeting, like, all right, not just my body, but my mind too. I'm here. I'm all in while I'm here. 
One of the things that this is bringing up for me is this idea of making space for even mundane things that you're doing, where, you know, for me, stirring my food is something where I could just super mind mindlessly do it, but instead I make space for actually taking a moment and thinking about it or, you know, with, whether it's work tasks or doing the dishes or whatever, it's this idea of, of giving it mental space and giving things mental space that you would not otherwise. And I, I do feel like that's, that may be like a little key to it is just making the space to think about it because you can consider intentions and all of these things, but it's just, just about giving it a bit of space to be important. I totally agree with that, Emily. I think that I was even maybe talking to you about wanting to meditate and finding it impossible to get back into. And I think it was you. We were having just the discussion around, well, I do have a lot of quiet moments throughout the day. It's just if I would bring more focus or intention or even just acknowledgement into those moments, it would then... Buddy, I'm recording a podcast. (laughs) You've got to be... all this conversation about mindfulness and prioritizing <laughs> and not multitasking. And here I am recording a podcast with my sick child monkeying around on my lap. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, um, just bringing that kind of mindfulness and intention to the moments of my day where I'm already being quiet and grounded. For example, putting my child to sleep. Like that's one of my quietest moments of the day. And it's one of those things that I found myself rushing through it or like wanting to get to the next thing, which was sitting on my couch and watching Netflix. Like as much as I want to watch Stranger Things, it was really a perfect opportunity to be mindful and present with my kiddo and with myself and even with my breath. Um, So really taking advantage of that. But then also, you know, to what you were saying, Leah, about the tasks, I think it's interesting because as I become more mindful to my tasks and even setting a 10 minute timer, Emily and I've talked about this so many times that we can get so much done in such little time whenever we have focused, concentrated effort on that task. And then it ultimately turns us into to-do list ninjas where we really are checking through all the things through book launches and, um, you know, podcast recordings and all the things that we have to do every single day. So it is this funny kind of thing where you do become much more productive by just slowing down and focusing on the task at hand. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like one of the hardest things for me is then if I'm going to structure my day to take those intense focused um, periods of time, then to really let myself have a break, I enjoy like I will let myself, you know, or try to let myself go for a walk or like go run and do something with a kid for 20 minutes instead of like my habit of being like, I'm going to get everything done so then I can be off for the day, which is also good. But um, letting those breaks really be breaks and do like give myself permission to do something I love um, for 10 minutes. It feels so good and it's so hard. Okay. I have a question about this. How I think that part of the hard thing about taking breaks is like maybe you're in the flow with work or you're really um, you like you can't turn it off in your head. So even as you go for the walk, you keep thinking like how do you 
do you compartmentalize or do you allow yourself to keep going? And this is a problem that I have where I can get in and super focus and get all of my tasks done for the day. And then I've only been here for like two or three hours. And not that I feel guilty, but then I'm like, now I can go ahead and do all my tasks for tomorrow as well. And so I'll put more things on my plate and get them done instead of just walking away and enjoying the fact that I just busted my ass and got everything done. Or like, now that that's done, (laughs) let's make another webinar. Like, right? Yeah. Or whatever it may be. Yes. Yes. No, and I feel like that's, I mean, it's so strange, isn't it? That, like, that's the place that takes the most discipline at this point. Like, it's not yes. to get the work done, it's to stop and it's to take that break and, you know, or take those vacation days that feel impossible to take. Um, and I think a part of it, you know, and this is consistent with the behavior change research is like, if we focus when we do like starting with something small. So for me, if I I might feel too guilty to say like, I'm going to go take a long workout middle of the day. It's like, I can put on my sneakers and take a 15 minute walk. I really can. And just while I'm doing that, even if my mind is wandering back to work stuff or what I should do next, just like keeping my attention in my body And then paying attention when I go back to work, like the quality of my mental processing is going to be so much higher. So really like taking the time to savor that will be the best reinforcement so that I can do it the next day. Because I feel like otherwise when I tell myself, when I schedule it in or sort of try to do it from a muscle it perspective, I'll just rebel and be like, no, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to get another thing done. I don't know. And that, I think that that's consistent with what people say. If you focus on the why you should do this behavior, it's not going to work as well as appreciating what you actually are getting out of it. Oh, I love that. That may have just been the mindset shift that I needed because there are lots of reasons why I should go ahead and do all the things that I could do. But I think that me thinking about why I shouldn't do them, why this is not the moment to go ahead to tomorrow's or next week's tasks may be a good place because I can think of more reasons why I shouldn't most days than why I should, I'm sure. Well, I also think I love the idea that, you know, as bosses, we can challenge ourselves to have the discipline to turn it off and that it is a practice and we're not going to win every single time at being mindful or at turning it off. But we're we're bosses like we can do really hard things. And if the hardest thing that we have to do is stop our <laughs> you know, train of thought from going into work and be present with ourselves, then, man, we've got some work to do. Right. <laughs> Right. Or we've done a good job, but we still have work to do. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, this is a great accountability. Oh, sorry. This is a great accountability place. Like you were saying, like that you to have these people in our lives who are also bosses and working on this themselves that like, you know, we can get that debrief and encouragement and check in. How is it going? And the stopping and the unplugging and the paying attention to the rest of it. And then how is your work benefiting when you come back to it? Like both sides. Yeah, I want to talk about that for just a second. This idea, because we've just talked about all kinds of things you can do or bringing mindfulness back to work. But what sort of real effect will it have on your work? This idea of being mindful and turning off when it's time. What what have you found comes from doing this not only in your life but also in your work so the the ability to focus our attention and return it back to the task at hand is highly trainable i mean this is one of the things we can get so much better at with practice um 
and it's enjoyable. And, you know, I, I was, I really appreciate the, um, the point too, that it's like the tuning in experience, like, or the bringing out the experience of flow in our work. So if we think about it from, you know, a flow state happens when there's a focus, but not overstress. So it has to be like this right level of engagement. Um, and so we can keep an eye on like, am I working in this sort of anxious, frantic way, which I know I can get into, or just sort of like dull and sleepy and not, um, but being in that middle ground between those two, we can be better at bringing ourselves into a flow state where we have better creativity, better generation, and also just better experience of it. So there, I think there's a lot of upsides to it. It's just <laughs> doing it. <laughs> right. I love this. I love this so much because flow is something that has been elusive to me as of late. And it's never been something that I could just tap into. Like, I love it when creatives are like, you know, I'm just going to go into the studio and tap into the flow and get all this shit done. And I'm like, I look at those people like I do like tarot card designers or like tarot deck designers. Like these are like magical beings that are off over here tapping into the flow whenever they want to. And I am not that person. I've gotten into it in my like own projects here and there, but I don't know how to do it. And I think I see this as a fun challenge of like figuring out how to get myself into it. This is something that I love about you, Emily, though, is that you don't have to be in flow to make it do. And maybe it's just because you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I've always really admired your ability to kind of do that, you know, task ninja-ing where you turn on your to-do list and you get through it right right but I do think that there, not. I know but I do think that there is something to flow especially whenever you're feeling burnt out um just feeling connected to your work right and yeah we can muscle through like Leah said our to-do list any given day but at some point it's not enough you'll find yourself not feeling fulfilled or connected or you know any of the things by your work <laughs> Yeah, because you're just checking off tasks on your to-do list. I love this. I'm taking that as a personal challenge right there. Thank you, guys. I want to hear how it goes. <laughs> well, and I feel like it we'll looks do. different for people, different people too. Like definitely, you know, some of the people I work with who are like 100-hour week, you know, finance sort of people, like super type A, like they their experience of flow is going to be really different than a more creative type or like an engineer just like coding is like my land. Um, I I don't know. So I'm curious about that part too. If just like there's a personality piece to like, there's a higher, higher like pace version for some of us who are just like, you know, it might look different than someone else. Right. And I also like I consider for myself the idea that my creative my creativity has changed significantly over the past couple of years. Like a couple of years ago, it was definitely coding websites and designing them these days or a year ago. It was writing our book. It was sitting down and like tapping into it or not to uh, falling into it, perhaps to write the book or whatever it may be. And so I I actually imagine that's probably part of my own personal problem with being able to tap into it is that I imagine there is probably a slightly different frequency for each, like each types of creative endeavors. Oh, this is going to be a bigger challenge than I thought. Thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) 
some of my favorite writings around flow and tapping into inspiration is Stephen Pressfield, who did The War of Art. Yeah. And then so I always get that mixed up with the original. It's a pun. It's a pun. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then also Liz Gilbert, who did Big Magic. I think that she also has a 20 minute TED talk. If you can't find the time to read the book, which I think is really great, but she does a TED talk that's really interesting about this and this idea of, you know, your genius coming to you and kind of sitting down and doing the work and then that's whenever it arrives like you still have to sit down and do the work and that's what's really interesting for you Emily is that you are always sitting down and doing the work and so if it's not coming to you it makes me wonder if like what needs to change for that to happen oh man this is gonna long challenge Um. (laughs) (laughs) I just got myself into a mess I think I I have a feeling it's bigger projects and fewer of them would be my guess. Leah, do you have any insights? Do you have any research? <laughs> I was just going to say, I'll be, I'll be accountability buddies with me. you on that one, Emily. <laughs> I have one of my teammates has really been in such a helpful way pointing out my propensity to like try to do, because I'm interested in 10 different projects in a time. And she's like, park nine, we'll do one. Then we'll do two through 10. And um, yeah, it's... um. But I think having these, having setting up our work relationships where we have people who know us that well and say, hey, you're picking up four more projects today, Leah. Remember, we're doing a sprint on this one. Um, you know, and I start and I'll, I'll be sneaky, except for I'm not that creative. So I'll be like, just want to know <laughs> what we're thinking about, blah, 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 and start trying to like go off on something we're not on. She'll be like, no. No, we're right. So you also need someone to call you on your bullshit occasionally. Gotcha. I'm gonna start a job description right now. (laughs) (laughs) Bullshit call like it. (laughs) Okay, so I want to really maybe close out this conversation by talking about success and redefining success. And I think it's the perfect thing to follow up a conversation of mindfulness and priorities. And I think that in this world, we're all defining success or having success defined for us with money and profit and the bottom line and even now all the followers. And I, it just doesn't feel real anymore. And I don't know if it's my phase of life that I'm coming into, but I can't help but let go of my attachments to those definitions of success. So I'm really curious to hear from you, Leah. How do you define success? And how can we really begin to retrain our our conditioning by society to redefine success in a more wholehearted way for ourselves? I've been thinking about this a lot, too, for myself. Like, Because I feel like factoring in contentment becomes such an important piece of it because there's always the ability to, to go for more and have external metrics. I feel like another really helpful part that I'm trying to remind myself of is like phase of life. Like right now, I really want to invest in the work I've already been investing in. And like I have these little kids who want to hang out with me. In 10 years, they're not going to be that psyched to hang out with me. So like that might be a better time to focus on some of these things that are You know, so thinking in terms of prioritizing and allowing for the life factors to be, you know, if right now it really is a priority to be here more, um, then I probably don't want my business to go in the direction of like 
multinational keynoting all the time, right? Even though that could be a viable business option for someone else um, or for me in a parallel universe. So I think that this is where the, the, the purpose piece of like, what is the purpose for me right now? And what are the metrics for that? And, and that they're like, you're saying they're more than the external, the money, the followers, like it might be my best year this year isn't, you know, going to be measured by getting a, whenever the goal people want is like the seven figure, it might be, it's half of that, but a really intentional year spent with my family. And in a few years out, I want to really go for a different set of metrics. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm the one with a sick kid laying in my lap right now. And like whenever (laughs) it comes to success and priorities, sometimes I wonder if, if I've got it all wrong, right? Like, I I just don't know. I'm in a season in my life where I just feel like it's so unfair that our childbearing years happen to be, like, our years where we can show the most potential as bosses. And I don't think that this is... I I don't think it's a problem for guys as much as it is for women, honestly. Um, But I am feeling like something's got to give. You know, when it's something that you just said, though, about having a parallel universe. I love the idea of giving my old definitions of success over to my parallel universe self. Like, okay, in a parallel universe, myself would want a TV show. But maybe in the season that I'm actually at in my real life, like that's just not the thing that I really truly Really want. And so for me, tapping into success is probably really tapping into what it is that I really, really want, which right now is that 10 day meditation. <laughs> right? 10 days of silence sounds 10 glorious days of silence. to me. <laughs> so glorious. Um, I know. And I love what you just said about having your metrics. And what I take from that is the idea of it's not about having a single metric, but about having multiple metrics that all have to work together, which I feel is kind of coming up for me as like the theme of this of this episode. And this idea that everything is fluid and everything works together and it's all interwoven and it's not just one thing that defines success, such as revenue, <laughs> whatever it may be, but it's multiple things. It's revenue paired with number of days you take off and you know which one gives for the other one's priority or whatever it may be I think it's about having multiple multiple metrics that define success and not just in work but in the work-life blend because there is such a blend between the two and I think we I don't think that we can separate them because you can if you just use a single metric like revenue to define your work success that's only half success. You've and therefore I think of failure in terms of if your life is shit but your work is great, then your life is shit. And that sucks. So um I think I think metrics are the key, at least for me, in terms of surprise, um, in terms of defining success. And it's about having multiples that that give you insight into multiple sides of what it is that you're doing and how it is that you're living and working to help you create the sort of holistic definition of success that's just for you. Emily, whenever you were talking about, you know, multiples, it makes me think about something I've been really considering lately, which is there can be more than one truth at the same time. Like it can be true that success is measured by how well I'm able to take care of my family and how many meals I'm able to get on the table 
um, and how well fed we are. And it can also be true that my success is also defined by my bottom line because it just is like I can't say that money doesn't matter. Um, And oftentimes, you know, I use those metrics as a measurement of my success that is more intangible. It helps me benchmark and see and define success. I think it's really just getting caught up in somebody else's idea of how much money. So this is where I always get tripped up is that I see someone else's success and feel like I should be there. And realizing that that's true for them and that's true for their success, potentially, who knows? Like we also never know, um, but also staying true to my own definition. So for well, ultimately for me, it's just getting out of the comparison trap and being able to define success on my own terms. Like for me, I can have a perfectly comfortable life not having that seven-figure launch, even though I want it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think all of that sits really well with me. Good. I like this conversation. Thanks, guys. <laughs> this was a good one. <laughs> I know, Leah. Thank you so much. This is um, one of those interviews that really does feel like a conversation, and it's been really fun exploring these topics with you. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun hanging out with you both, and I feel like I'm bringing some experiments out of this conversation that I want to run, too. Yeah. My- we'll keep us up to date. Do. All right. So a couple more things before you go. Um, first off, tell us a little bit more about the book you're writing. So the book comes out in March and it's available for pre-order now. And it's called How We Work. And it's Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. That's the long version of the title with HarperCollins. And it's... Um, it's really about a bringing together tools and research and actionable practices along the lines of the topics we've been talking about today. Very Love good. It. All right, Leah. And finally, what makes you feel most boss? I think having right now I'm going to go with having really good conversations with other bosses that I feel on aligned with in our worldview. It's the best feeling. I'm loving this feeling right now. <laughs> Amen. Awesome. Me too. Me too. I think that, and, and I think that this is becoming more normal where conversations like this are being had. And I, I can only be excited about what it'll mean for how we're all working and living in the super near future. We have gotten so much amazing feedback over the years from listeners about how our podcast has helped them start, grow, and uplevel their businesses. So we want to celebrate you. Here's the boss we're celebrating this week. Hi, my name is Tiffany Davis, and I am Being Bar. I direct content, brand strategy, and events by sister at Context & Co. And this week, I'm celebrating my first day back from maternity leave. After co-founding our biz last spring when we were both employed full-time elsewhere, we are now booked up and psyched to be working side-by-side and for ourselves as we admire and adore and a shared vision to kick ass and have a blast doing it in 2018. If you're feeling boss and want to submit your own boss moment or win, go to www.beingboss.club slash boss. This episode of Being Boss was brought to you by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Thank you to FreshBooks for sponsoring us. And you guys can try it for free by going to freshbooks.com slash beingboss. 
Thank you for listening to Being Boss. Find articles, show notes, and downloads at www.beingboss.club. Thank you so much to our team and sponsors who make Being Boss possible. Our sound engineer and web developer, Corey Winter. Our editorial director and content manager, Caitlin Brain. Our community manager and social media director, Sharon Lukey. And our Bean counter, David Austin, with support from Braid Creative and Indie Shopography. Do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.